that you're going to have to have grit. This is one of the most difficult markets, you know, from an entrepreneurial perspective that you can work in, in the United States. The reason that you should work here though, is because it's some of the most rewarding and impactful work that you could do with your professional time and energy, full stop period. These missions are of the utmost, you know, urgency and importance to our, our way of life. And that's, that's what gets me out of bed every day. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Through our blood and your bonds, we crushed the Germans before we got here. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. All right, this is Bonnie Evangelista with the Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Office, joined by Mr. Mike Wagland. Did I get that right? Mike Wagand. Wagand. I'm sorry about that. Who do you work for? What's your role? Hi, Bonnie. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast today. So I'm the co-founder and the Chief Growth Officer at Shift5. We're a data and cybersecurity company that was initially founded by myself and Josh Laspinoso, both ex-Army cyber officers. Uh, initially to help secure our nation's weapon systems and critical fleet infrastructure from cyber attack. But now we have found ourselves at the center of a data infrastructure company that's really helping bring observability to uh, fleet systems, planes, trains, tanks, satellites in the near future, uh, so that we can extract data off of those systems, secure them, but then make that data accessible to increase their operational readiness or other important use cases. Mm, a cyber background. That's, yeah. That's always, anyone who listens to this show already knows that's kind of my former stomping ground. So it's very exciting for me. How old is Shift 5? So Shift 5 is about four and a half years old. It was founded in 2019. Do you still consider yourself a startup? I don't think we consider ourselves a startup anymore. We kind of consider ourselves uh, in the scale-up phase. So we we elected very early on to take venture capital and we've raised over $105 million at this point. We've grown uh, the company into an eight-figure ARR business, and uh, and we've massively expanded. So, I, I think we are uh, we're through the startup, you know, kind of phases now, and and we're trying to figure out how to scale as we deploy hardware and software onto multiple weapon system fleets across the Department of Defense and in commercial industry. Are you only serving the government? No, so we're a dual-use company. We put our our solutions on commercial aircraft. We have our first hardware. Finishing the FAA certification steps actually in the next couple months. We've been working with the airlines now for over a year doing off vehicle data processing for uh, safety and security use cases. We've been working in the rail space for a couple years, helping secure and pull data out of locomotives for the passenger and the freight rails, both for safety and operational efficiency use cases. And so um, we're, we're really excited to be working with DOD who is literally at the, uh, at the bleeding edge of weapon system cybersecurity, but also you know, bring that technology to commercial industry where it can have a tremendous impact on our national security. And at the same time, take operational readiness and maintenance use cases from industry and bring them back to the military so that we can employ you know, the same solutions to increase the operational readiness level of a lot of our fleets. Which service? are you working with? So Bonnie, we work with all of the services, I think with the exception of the Coast Guard and maybe the Marines, but um, we're we're excited to work with them in the near future. Our biggest customers are a couple of the COCOMs, the Air Force, Navy, and the Army. 
So in my experience and talking with people like yourself, usually companies are born out of you're trying to remove friction or you're trying to solve a problem. And I, and I want to get I'll get into your background in, in a second. But if I were to guess, what problem were you like frustrated with that you kept seeing or something that this journey for you was born out of? Yeah. So, Bonnie, I observed this problem when I was in uniform and I was so gripped by it that eventually I, I realized I needed to start a company because there wasn't a firm that was building solutions that could be made available to the military or the commercial industry to to solve it. And so that was why I resigned my commission and, and have taken this detour into uh, entrepreneur land and business. I hope someday to get back to public service because I think that's incredibly important, as you've highlighted in your career. But the problem that initially I was so focused on solving was that our weapon systems today across the Department of Defense are increasingly automated. They're computer controlled. They use these special computers running embedded operating systems. So they're not like our traditional servers and laptops and desktop computers. They're what we call operational technology. They're running specialized operating systems, typically real-time operating systems. And they communicate with one another over different network technologies than we're accustomed to in the IT world. Standards like MIL standard 1553, A-Rank 429, serial data buses, in some cases, some really old school stuff. And despite all of this automation and increasing connectivity as we modernize systems and make them communicate with one another to be more effective, there's no onboard cyber monitoring or cybersecurity. Just as a general statement on the vast majority of our weapon systems that are in the sustainment phase. New systems that are in development today have requirements for cyber protection, cyber survivability, but the stuff that we would have to go to war with right now does not have things like onboard antivirus or intrusion detection or intrusion prevention on systems like their avionics data bus. The mission command systems and communication systems are typically pretty well secured. But the things that actually enable the shoot or the move functionality often don't have any cyber protection. And I, I was really gripped by that problem. I wanted to solve it. And as we dove into that problem, I realized that there was a foundational issue. And uh, the foundational issue all comes back to data. I, I know a, a topic that you and your audience are, are intimately familiar with. Was missing was hardware and software on these weapon systems that enabled us to access that operational technology data without being able to access it and observe what's going on on the inside. We had no chance of doing things like anomaly detection. And you have to do anomaly detection and classify those anomalies as maintenance issues or cyber issues if you're ever going to defend a network. So that's what Ship 5 has been focused on is solving that data observability and data access problem on weapon systems and then deploying anomaly detection capabilities so that we can secure them and solve other use cases along the way. And the impacts or the consequences to the problem you're describing, you felt that during your time in uniform? Yeah. So my, my concern was that as we looked to pacing threats, that those pacing threats around the world, you know, they can never compete with us in a dollar for dollar kind of defense spend. Right, We have the nation's best military industrial complex backing up the world's most professional and experienced military, full stop period. And so as our pacing 
threats around the world look to gain advantage over us. They often look to asymmetric and hybrid warfare techniques. And uh, because of our automation, because of our vast communications interconnection, we actually have, you know, potentially some vulnerabilities there that lesser funded adversaries could exploit in order to hold our systems at risk. And it's impossible for senior leaders today to judge what that risk is because we don't have the sensors monitoring what I see as critical cyber terrain within the fleets of weapon systems that we have deployed. And so that was the problem that kept me up at night and has really kind of compelled my professional journey up to today. Tell, tell me a little bit more about your background, your time in uniform, because I, this is all leading up to, I think, where I want the conversation to go. But it's important to understand, because admittedly, I want to go into the cyber terrain part, I don't, but tell us how you kind of came at this intersection of understanding the things you're talking about. Yeah, Bonnie, my journey really started at West Point. It wasn't an easy journey to get in there. I have the distinct honor of being rejected by every service academy, but I just kept showing up and, and knocking on the door at West Point. They they eventually let me in, probably a mistake that the army made. But um, while I was there, I, I fell in with a phenomenal set of mentors and instructors in the computer science and electrical engineering department, and they really shaped me. When I commissioned, there was no cyber branch available. So the army um, saw fit to encourage me to join the infantry, and I did that. So I jumped out of airplanes and went to ranger school, and I worked in a what's called an armored brigade combat team. I was with tanks and Bradleys and all of our, our heavy formations. I learned the thing there. Wait, I'm sorry to interrupt. Did you say you went when you were at West Point, you studied like computer science, or were your, your mentors just like of that? Oh, no, I, I was fully engrossed in like computer science and cyber. I was the nerdiest, skinniest guy that like you could possibly imagine, you know? <laughs> and then you went infantry? That's right. Yeah. I mean, okay, okay, okay. I'm following. God bless, right? That's kind of the army for you, but it's the best thing that ever happened to me because I got to learn how the army fights and it was the best leadership laboratory experience. I was just gifted to work with phenomenal NCOs and in combat units, right? bringing decades of experience. And uh, every single day was uh, a masterclass in how to lead troops, in maintenance, in logistics, right? Which is super critical in, in these heavy formations. Yeah. How the army run? Oh my gosh. Yeah. What goes into moving an armored formation? It's mind boggling. The amount of fuel and ammunition and spare parts and the attention to detail and the maintenance, it's incredibly complex. I never would have appreciated all of that. And it's actually there that I started to learn, wait a second, there's all these computers under the armor in our vehicles and, and they don't work without the computers working. That was where the aha moment actually was sparked was probably somewhere on a training range back at the time we called it Fort Hood, you know, uh, probably during like a, a live fire exercise, like late at night, I was like, oh my gosh, like if my turret mission processor doesn't work, my, my vehicle's deadlined. And I'm out of the fight, you know? So in 2014, the army established the cyber branch, the first new branch, you know, military occupational specialty, you know, collection in the army since special forces, I think back in the seventies or eighties. And I was, I was super lucky to be one of the first officers to uh, get pulled in and to help build, build that branch up. So, um, I was in the right place at the right time. And it was through the access and the opportunities that were provided you know, being an early, um, 
you know, officer in that branch that I got to work with senior leaders and share this observation that I had about our weapon systems being so cyber dependent. And yet there was not ready ways for cyber protection teams to show up and suck data out of many of our weapon systems and immediately kind of execute these mission essential tasks that we had, right? Our missions were on the defensive side to conduct incident response, to conduct active hunt. And on the flip side, you know that, hey, wait a second, there's a tremendous opportunity to hold cyber physical systems at risk. And it's a very different set of access, persistence, and capability development problems when you're going after vehicles or military equipment than when you're going after IT systems. So I think largely because of those interests kind of shied toward and tried to specialize in, in that area. So when did you decide to separate and transition? And actually, I don't even, it's part of your story as when you separated. Is that when you started the company or was there a period of something else happening before you started the company? Yeah, so I think I made the decision around like the seven, seven and a half year mark for me. I wanted to serve, you know, eight years. And I did that right after I got my DD-254, uh, sorry, what do you call it? Or, or your DD-214, your discharge paperwork. I literally drove from like Port Mead, where I was working at the time, to a single office that we were running here in, in Roslyn, right next to Arlington National Cemetery for like a dollar a month from another startup and, uh, and got to work like that day because I had, I, I really knew what I, what I wanted to do and I had a plan and I had really phenomenal co-founders with me and we had already talked to, you know, during my, my terminal leave, I talked to some investors and we found some national security focused venture capitalists that understood the problem that we were trying to solve in defense and its uh, criticality to commercial critical infrastructure like transportation. And they were willing to kind of stake us and give us, you know, quite literally give us the monetary means to take care of our families while we were figuring out the business plan and, you know, trying to, trying to get started. So that was a really exciting and stressful time. I don't have an MBA. Uh, yeah, I've learned all of, all of the lessons the hard way by, you know, crawling across the, the business battlefield and, um, you just try and fail forward constantly, you know? Yeah. I can feel that from you. I'm laughing a little bit. My, one of my favorite questions to ask people like yourself, you jumped into something not knowing, which is great. And then I'm like, so what was that like when you were trying to grapple with the acquisition part of selling to the government? What was that startup journey like for you learning and diving into or navigating that space? Yeah, well, I had a plan. And I think that that was part of the uh, service training that I had received, right? I had a plan. We had contingencies and everything like that. But at a certain, uh, to a certain extent, you just, I didn't know what I didn't know. So uh, running into the acquisition buzzsaw. And saw, yes. <laughs> it was a moment, you know, I was like, holy smokes, this is, this is complicated. But I learned some fundamental lessons in ranger school and, you know, as a platoon leader and as a company commander, I think are universal and really helped our approach. Number one, read the manual. We had this phrase, RTFM, read the blank manual. It, it's difficult, but you have to read and understand the federal acquisition regulation. You have to read and understand policy directives. And you have to empathize with the constraints of you know, mission partners, acquisition officers. If you don't understand that stuff and take the time to, to really get to know the process, you're going to be doomed to fail. And nobody's going to do that homework for you. 
It's not incumbent on, you know, on the government or the military to explain to you how the acquisition system works. It's all written. And a lot of it's in U.S. code and policy directives. Everything's accessible. So that helped us kind of navigate. Our first stop was to try and get some acquisition vehicles, some contract vehicles. And we realized early that the small business innovative research, you know, avenue was, was highly attractive and is. The key to success there is to get in and out of the Cibber program as fast as humanly possible. Don't be what some people call Cibber mills, where you're just living off of Cibber phase ones and twos. It's a disservice to the taxpayer and to the, the spirit of the program. Get that phase one, you know, initial contract, which gives you a license to go talk to service people. Figure out what the problems are and the solution that you can bring pitch and secure a phase two contract that gives you a little bit of money, right? A million and a half in a year to kind of demonstrate initial minimum viable. And then immediately use the Cibber phase three acquisition authorities to go secure real funding, real appropriations dollars to actually extend or mature the solution and, and work into and through that value tap into the TPE process. Yeah. So that would be my advice to any company starting. How long did that take you? I'm, I'm guessing you got a sipper. How long did it take you to get your sipper that you're? Yeah, so we, we got a phase one and increased it to phase two. We also got a direct to phase two and we won an Army Innovation Day contract all within the space of about probably in our first 12, 12 or 18 months. Uh, thereafter, we started, you know, developing teaming agreements with system integrators and OEMs. That's key especially for us where we're putting hardware and software on weapon systems. You have to work with, with people that actually build the systems and you have to bring value to them in addition to the warfighter. It was pretty shortly thereafter that we started developing and implementing strategies to work directly with PMOs and get on their forecasts and built into their palm cycles. And that's a multi-year journey and you have to start that as early as possible. Did I hear you say you do have a phase three with the army? We've executed probably close to a dozen phase three contracts at this point. And phase three is really just means that, you know, somebody else was able to use other monies, right, in order to gain access to the capabilities we built earlier and, and deploy it. Yeah. So that's pretty impressive to me. So I, I would say you crossed that quote unquote valley of death. That term has a lot of baggage, I think. I'm going to first ask, what does that term mean to you? And then I, I would like to know what that was like going when you realized I'm in the valley of death. What was that like? And scary. Again, yeah. <laughs> You're like, oh, no, it's that thing I heard about. right? Bonnie, to me, the valley of death is that time period between when you get an initial small little seedling funding R&D project that lets you gain access to warfighters, iterate do spiral upgrades and really figure your product out between then and having a product that's ready and solves a need, solves a requirement, but where there is not funding available from the appropriate program office that needs to buy the thing and sustain the thing, that period of time is the value of death. And it's usually a minimum of three years because that's what the POM cycle is, the amount of time it takes for a program office to write you into their budget and get that budget approved, funded by, you know, by appropriators and Congress associated with an NDAA and then back down. 
what a lot of people don't anticipate is that you also have to bake in the tremendous amount of time that it takes to get through the contracting cycles. And, uh, you know, you, you have to plan for, you know, six to 12 month, you know, contracting negotiating periods. And, and also because contracting offices, you know, they have a tremendous amount going on and you, you're probably not going to be their top priority. So, you know, that can take a long time too. So, you know, four, four years is usually about how long it, it takes. You shortcut that by ensuring effective communication and championship all the way across the stakeholder chain from the user community and the warfighters up through requirements officers to the contracting office, senior leader support, and then ensuring that the congressional affairs side of things are also tracking and that they're ready to receive and that they're not surprised when DOD shows up with requests for funding. What piece of advice would you give anybody who's going through a similar journey as yours? Because well, everything you've described for someone in my seat, it's kind of the norm. And of course, someone like me is also looking for ways to kind of break through this construct we've built for ourselves. But in the meantime, we still have, there's still people trying to break through. What advice would you give them? Well, Bonnie, I think the first thing that I would tell them is uh, you're going to have to have grit. This is one of the most difficult markets, you know, from an entrepreneurial perspective that you can work in, in the United States. The reason that you should work here though, is because it's some of the most rewarding and impactful work that you could do with your professional time and energy, full stop period. These missions are of the utmost, you know, urgency and importance to our, our way of life. And that's, that's what gets me out of bed every day is an opportunity to continue to work on really cool, sexy mission, if I can say that, and to work with incredible and, and passionate people, you know, across the spectrum, uniformed, you know, dedicated, you know, service and department civilians, you know, folks on, on Capitol Hill that wake up every day, uh, you know, trying to figure out how to, how to fund and set policy to make DOD as effective as possible and in other contractors and, and support personnel that, you know, share that, that vision as well. The second thing I would say is you need to plan for the long run. If you're venture backed, you need to take on more money than you think you need. You need to give yourself more time than you think you need. Things will go wrong. You need to learn how to operate under continuing resolution. We've spent more than half of our life existence under CR and understand what that means. And you need to work with investors that are going to have the patience and the professional experience and already understand the challenges that you're going to face and help guide you through it. Because this is not a industry where you're going to build a thing that instantly solves an urgent and important problem and then instantly be able to scale within you know, weeks to months, like you could in other industries, because you have to account for developmental and operational testing, safety assessments. You have to account for, if you're building hardware, all of the uh, certifications that are going to have to go into that. If you're building software, AI algorithms, the new EO, right? Uh, how are you going to test and certify that this is uh, going to operate in a safe and expected manner? Because the consequences of getting it wrong in this industry are not service denial, you know, they, they could be life and death. And so you have to bring a completely different game face expectation and a level of care to this industry than I think you do if you were, you know, just building like a software app. Yeah. When you mentioned, you know, this is, this is a space that you're in for the long game. Uh, it's, 
quickly scaling something isn't as easy as you might see it on the commercial side. This might be a heavy question, not meant to put you on the spot, but it's something I think about because uh, I am really passionate about getting startups and actual real bleeding edge technology in the door. And I wonder if what you talked about, that whole um, kind of the mission driven passion is enough. Do you think that's enough of a, an incentive or motivation to keep our supply chain healthy on an emerging technology front? It's not. I think that when we think about innovation competition, we have such a tremendous advantage You know, here in the United States. If you're the best entrepreneur or engineer anywhere in the world, you want to come here and participate in our marketplace of ideas, in our marketplace of opportunity. I think that the department can do more in order to accelerate the identification and integration of novel technologies into the department. What that looks like, to really be specific, is giving more white space budget to program management offices, shortening the PPBE and POM cycles, ensuring that we're more comfortable taking risks. And I'm not talking about risks in the you know, hundreds of billions of dollars level, it would be, tr it would be tremendously impactful to, you know, give PMOs, give contracting and acquisition officers the ability to take risks in the, you know, two to $15 million range where, you know, a $10 million contract to a startup that's in a, a series B, series A, you know, kind of phase in DOD is such a tremendous signal to that company and to their investors. They can go out and mobilize incredible private capital, you know, in order to, you know, continue to sustain their mission, but it shouldn't take congressional marks to, you know, get that 10 or $15 million white space to a PMO, which might take, you know, 18, 24, 36 months. So I think that that's how we can create more incentives, take advantage and mobilize venture capital smartly. I think that this is understood by many of our senior leaders. We hear a lot of senior leaders across DOD talking about this. It hasn't quite filtered down through the frozen middle and it's not being implemented at the scale that the DOD needs to, to really compete in the innovation space against uh, some of our pacing threats and the marketplaces that they're building. What other things are you looking forward to in your journey? Like, you know, you've kind of, I won't say you've reached the summit, but you know, you're, you're on a path. You've done some hard things, like getting through the acquisition. On a previous episode, we called it the acquisition labyrinth. And now you're delivering, you've got multiple phase threes. You're delivering to customers across the services. Like what, what does that next step look like for you? So one of the really exciting things we're focused on right now is we've taken hardware and software. We've put it on an initial fleet of aircraft. We upgraded the first manned aircraft fleet in the history of aviation with a real-time onboard cyber monitoring solution for its avionics. And we're now expanding the use cases. With the ability to tap and suck the data out, we're looking at how can we make that data uh, accessible for maintenance use cases? How can this data serve digital twinning and enable predictive uh, maintenance modeling? Not looking at fault codes, looking at the actual communications between the digital systems on board, which is not something that's been done before. The next summit for us is scaling out and deploying this onto multiple fleets of increasing fleet size. And that poses uh, its own set of really exciting challenges. 
when you move from a fleet of 20 to a fleet of 100 aircraft, and then you're looking at a fleet of 500 ground combat vehicles, and then a fleet of 5,000 ground combat vehicles, that's the journey that we're on right now. We're trying to compress all of that down so that we can get these cyber sensors and these edge computing devices out to address maintenance, operational readiness, and cyber monitoring solutions as fast as possible. And, and doing that poses tremendous logistics challenges. And so we're, we're working through all of that right now. So I, I'm really excited to, you know, just help build the team that's going to solve those problems so that we can get these capabilities out, proliferate them so that our warfighters can secure and observe all of this cyber terrain. And then simultaneously scale this in the commercial markets, which have their own set of regulatory challenges and commercialization, right? Tremendous certification challenges there. So I don't want to stop until every commercial airliner has onboard cyber monitoring. I think it's crazy that we fly today on aircraft where there's nothing that tells a crew chief or a pilot that like, hey, this box underneath the, the cockpit doesn't have the correct software on board. I, I want to bring about a world where you know, we have cryptographic and secured software update monsters to avionics. Is there anything else you would recommend in terms of resources that were helpful to you? Any part of the journey, you know, whether it was the business ops side, the navigating the valley of death side, how to find the right VCs even, like you were talking about, like, I understand that's super important on both sides. Like VCs, I think they're looking, and I think that's a compliment to you because VCs are often looking for the right person not the right product or thing. They're looking for who's going to have that grit and resilience that you talked about earlier to take this all the way home. Anything that was super helpful to you that you want to share with others? Bonnie, I think my last piece of advice to others looking to get started is to make sure that you're reading the defense strategy and you know the policy documents that are, are published routinely at the OSD and at the service level. If you can't tie the service or the product that you're trying to bring to the defense department back to the objectives, mission, and, and be able to communicate it in senior leader terms back to these uh, you know, policy documents and, and strategy documents, then you're missing a really key communication opportunity. And that there should also shape your, your thoughts on, on how to approach you know, prospective customers or mission partners. And it's that communication throughput and, and reading and understanding that I, I often see as missing, especially with younger companies who maybe just don't realize that that's out there or they underappreciate the value and in, in the, really the need to do that to operate in this space. Okay. And now we're going to flip the coin. Advice for public servants, practitioners like me, because you've been on both sides now. You've seen, you've walked in you know, multiple different shoes, I would say, uh, different roles, different perspectives. What would you give those of us on the government side? What's landing for you in terms of the message you want us to hear right now? I think if you're on the acquisition or the contracting side, please get more familiar with the Cyber Phase 3 authorities. It's an amazing and, and incredible way to save yourself time and money. If a company's want a Phase 1 or a Phase 2 Cyber, They've been pre-competed. They have a sole source and special acquisition authorities. And you can use any color of money to engage in them. 
But when you decide that you want to engage with them, try and do so quickly. One of the things that these small businesses really struggle with as they're entering the defense market, and actually I think even the big businesses, is forecasting. And you know, for anybody that's on the capture side, forecasting is incredibly difficult. But if you can help get contracts through in 45 days or less, and it's totally easy and possible to do, but if you can hold yourself to that internal standard, you will help them ultimately help you because they will forecast effectively to their investors. They'll bring additional resources to bear. But when contracting actions get strung out three, six, nine, 12 months, you're literally killing them. And they don't have the wherewithal to sustain that kind of negotiation period, as an example. Awesome advice. I'm probably, I should do a podcast just on Sibbers in the spirit of that. So I have one more you know, because you're, you're full of good insights. So in the spirit of the Defense Mavericks community, what does that mean to you? What does it mean to be a Defense Maverick? I think somebody that's going to, you know, throw full afterburner and is going to get after it and is going to, as a community, overcome whatever the obstacles are. Somebody that's gripped by the mission, that's, you know, fully committed to advantaging our nation with the best capabilities and is going to run through whatever the bureaucratic or logistics challenges are to get there. That's what a defense maverick is to me. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. This was truly a pleasure. Thank you, Bonnie. And and thank you for everything that you do for our community. Awesome. 